Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we have the full audio conversation from a recent event that we at Lippy Taylor just threw called Taking Your Seat at the Table, Strategies for Reaching the C-Suite as a Woman. The event was entirely dedicated to uncovering key strategies for women who aspire to C-suite positions. We had an incredible series of guests. They were all women leaders from some of the most notable brands in the world. Our guests included the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer of Pfizer, Sally Sussman, the Head of Corporate Communications for Citibank, Jennifer Lowney, the EVP of Corporate Communications at Scholastic, Stephanie Smirnoff. The Executive Director of Leadership Communications at Merck, Joanna Breitstein. The former SVP and CCO for Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Kim White. Pernod Ricard's Director of External Communications and Customer Success, Taylor Foxman. And the conversation was moderated by Jessica Federer, the former Chief Digital Officer of Bayer, and Lippy Taylor's very own CEO, Maureen Lippy. This was a really, really wonderful evening. The guests were fantastic, and the entire point of the night was for these very accomplished female leaders to share their insights, strategies, and advice for the next generation of aspiring female leaders, and we truthfully were so overwhelmed just at how generous everybody was with their knowledge. There's some very golden insight and advice in here. You may want to grab a pen and paper or just use your notes out. Now, without further ado, here is the full conversation from Lippy Taylor's recent event, Taking your seat at the table, strategies for reaching the C-suite as a woman. First, let me just say thank you to all of you wonderful, stellar, successful women for being here. We are so excited to have you and so grateful to have you. This is the first of many workshops and roundtables with women that just have reached a certain level in their career and have so much education and information and guidance for so many other women who are stymied or stuck and just not where they want to be in their career and need advice and counsel and mentoring. Um, so to start out, why don't we all just go around the table, explain who we are, where we are in our careers, what do we think really got us there, and maybe what was the biggest stumbling block to our success and the, in 30 seconds? No, I'm <laughs> Two to three minutes? Sure. Joanna, will you yes, start? I'm happy to. Great. And really happy to be here. So thank, thank you. you for inviting me. Uh, so I'm Joanna Breitstein. I lead a group called Leadership Communications at Merck which is a biopharmaceutical company. <clears throat> and uh, before joining Merck, uh, I sort of had uh, an interesting career in that I worked in many sectors. So I really started my career first as an agency, but then as a reporter covering the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, from there, I oversaw communications at a Gates-funded not-for-profit, developing tuberculosis drugs, which really gave me um, a lot of insight and time to spend in Africa and other places working with communities and others to run clinical trials for desperately needed better drugs. Uh, that culminated for me in an experience of, uh, which I'll never forget, of launching the first correctly dosed pediatric TB drugs in Kenya. Wow. From there, I felt like I needed something new. I had achieved what I had hoped to. Uh, so I had a, decided to try the corporate 
space and worked for a few months at Aetna, but then when Ken Frazier called me to be his speechwriter, I could not say no to that. So the next thing I knew, I bought a car, learned how to drive, and drove to New Jersey to take the car. I think what has powered my career is a sense of story. So understanding how to find story, how to build story, and how to drive interest in story and all those human elements that accompany and that we often forget when we're talking about science. And I also feel that uh, I've been guided by purpose and excitement about, I, I sort of don't come up with a long plan of all the things I'm gonna do in my life, but just are led by the exciting thing in front of me and what I want to accomplish next. And that has actually served me quite well. That's great. Hello. I'm Kim White. I'm a longtime agency person, and I have to say I am so proud of Joanna because she was just a young pup so many years ago when I was running the global health team at Ogilvy, and it's so amazing to see how your career has developed. Thank you. We could have guessed that good things were going to happen a long time ago. Um, I'm a longtime agency person. I started out at Burson Marsteller uh, in the 80s. I spent a long time, 16 years at Ogilvy, uh, ran the global health team there, and then ran the global health team at Edelman for seven years. I'm a two-time CCO. I ran communications for Baxter and most recently for Vertex, and I'm figuring out my next move right now. Okay. And I think that what has probably fueled my career are two things. Um, on, the, on the personal front, having nothing to do with content, I think it's authenticity. I think it's about being real and being approachable and being human. I think that no matter what company I'm talking about or what role I've played within it, that that has served me really well and helped me to generate a following of people who are, are supporters and people who want to be on your team because you, know, you reach a point in time early in your career where no matter how good you are, it's not about how good you are, it's how good you can make other people and whether or not you can attract other good people. Um, and I think that um, Joanna talks about being a storyteller. I, I think of being a translator. And I think that has to do with some of the technical subject matter that healthcare communicators deal with in particular. Um, I have to make sense of things that scientists and other more technically minded people are talking about and help other audiences who don't necessarily have that education, that background, or that full-time attention span understand. And the ability to do that, I think, has been key to my success in multiple places. That's great, Kim. Thank you. Um, I'm Stephanie Smirnoff. I oversee global corporate communications and national partnerships at Scholastic. Um, Scholastic, for those of you who don't know, is the world's largest publisher and distributor of children's books and educational materials. Probably there's a Scholastic book or book fair in your past, some of you. Um, you know, it's an interesting question trying to think about if there's one single thing that's fueled my, my career progression. And I did the math. I'm actually, it was 27 years ago this month that I moved to Manhattan for my first, like, real job. You know, my first <laughs> corporate job at, at the Donna Karen Company. And um, so I was thinking about, I've only worked for five companies in a 27-year career, which is a little bit unusual, I think. Yes. And I think when I look at what's behind that, it's that I, I go to places where I believe in the mission, whether it's an agency in whom I believe, or on the client side, a company whose mission I, I very much connect with personally and want to be a part of. So I think there's this idea of... I like translator, I like storyteller, I think um, evangelist also mm -hmm. is, is a role that I've played wherever I've gone, whether it was leading 
uh, you know, $40 million P&L at Edelman or being the CEO of a mid-sized agency, now overseeing communications for this beautifully mission-driven company that stands for children and reading around the world. So I think that's, it's hard to find a common thread in a career sometimes, but I think that would be mine. Mm. Great. Hi, I'm Jen Filoni. I run corporate communications at Citigroup Global Bank. Uh, I've been at City for about five years and um, have enjoyed the immense learnings that come from working at a company that has some geopolitical crisis or financial issue basically every day, <laughs> every day. of every year. <laughs> um, so it's been fast moving and a, a, a fantastic journey so far. Before that, I was at Brunswick. Uh, where I was for 11 years, ran the New York office before I left, worked on a large variety of financial transactions, IPOs, restructurings, a lot of M&A yes, work, yeah. where Sally Great was a job. client. Mm -hmm. um, if I think about what has propelled my career, I have felt very um, lucky and blessed to have a fantastic uh, set of mentors that have supported me over the course of my career and really consistently pushed me outside my comfort zone, pushed me center stage, pushed me to the front of the pack. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I think I worked very hard to make sure that I lived up to their expectations. And that combination has served me well and continued to produce additional opportunities for me. If I think about what held me back, it was um, coming to the understanding, which took time, that my style didn't need to be their style. Mm -hmm. And what got them there um, wasn't necessarily what fit me and what worked for me. So I, I think as you grow in your career and you have people who you learn from, who you respect, who are supportive of you, it's natural to feel as though I have to be like them. And it really took me a bit of time to learn that I can, could be equally effective without being exactly the way they were. That's great. Hi, I'm Sally Sussman. I'm the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer, where I do primarily three things. Uh, lead our communications efforts, our government affairs around the world, and our corporate responsibility. I chair the Pfizer Foundation. I think like most little girls growing up, I wanted to do good in the world, and I thought that that would happen by having a career in government. So I started working on Capitol Hill out of college, and um, it was exciting until my greatest achievement after six years was changing in the law the word from an and to an or. <laughs> and it just was insufficient. But during that time, I met a lot of great people who worked in fabulous companies. And I came up with the thought that you can do a lot of good work from a large, well-resourced, uh, forward-leaning public company. So I've worked at three. American Express, Estee Lauder, and now Pfizer. I think if anything has fueled my, my career, it's really been a love for this work. I enjoy building bridges with stakeholders. I like debating with people the pros and cons of what we do. Note, when people ask me, tell me what your job is like, what is an average day? There is no average day, and for that I'm enormously grateful. If there's one thing that probably I wish I'd done differently or could have been a derailleur is I regret the risks I didn't take. I know everyone around this table has taken many risks, but there's always that thing you didn't do or the thing you didn't say or the chance you didn't take. And that is what I always want to 
fight against going forward because when you take those risks, I believe you, you reach greater heights. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Nobody could argue that. Mm -hmm. Hi everyone, I'm Taylor Foxman. I run communications and as of two weeks ago, customer success uh, for Preneur Card in the United States. So we are the second largest global wine and spirit supplier in the world. Um, I started on the agency side as well. So I worked for my first eight years on the agency side for two bigger PR agencies. And I have such fond memories of those times and I'll forever remember that moving forward. Um, uh, you know, and so I've always been specifically in spirits. I didn't realize that I would be able to be in a profession like that. I didn't think it was real. Um, and so I started working within wine, beer, and spirits when I was 17 and I just turned 31 and the path continues. Um, and so for the last two years, I've been working in-house, um, running the business that I worked on 10 years ago at the, on the agency side. Um, in terms of what propels me, it's just, it's just my innate desire to just want to genuinely know people and understand them. And I go into relationships with no motive, MO. It's really just, I wanna understand you better. And I think through that, whether it's been professional or personal, it's really driven me ahead. Because people see through, you know, people that are in situations for certain reasons. And so when you go into something open-minded, people are more open to getting to know you. And yeah, so um, in terms of what's held me back, it's been myself. So I've been working, I had a lot of confidence when I was a child, then it went away, and I'm working in my 30s on getting it back, so yeah. Bravo. Thanks. Who are you? Oh my. <laughs> mm. Um, well, I guess we'll do introductions too while I was going to start the next question. No, you um, just tell us who you are. Great. So, I'm Jessica Federer. I've been in the life science industry my entire career. Uh, most recently, I was uh, the Chief Digital Officer at Bayer, where I ran the digital transformation for the pharmaceutical consumer care crop science and animal health businesses, uh, which was an absolute pleasure. Previous to that, I worked in regulatory affairs. Um, launched some of the biggest blockbuster drugs that are out there, um, helped start the market access team globally and roll it out in 100 countries, and I've just been really privileged to do, as you said, use science to help people have a better life, uh, and that's an incredible gift. Uh, after leaving Bayer, I've switched to the other side, which I can say I recommend to all of you at some point, is coming to the VC world. Uh, where I have the privilege to help new companies to grow and to also do new things in different countries um, across the life sciences. And it's my privilege to be here with Maureen because whenever she calls and asks, will you, I just say yes and then we figure out what it was. And you can see why. What it was later because well, I would ask her. It's, it's a anyway. privilege to work with Maureen. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be very fast. I am Maureen Lippi, CEO of Lippi Taylor. And I have been obsessed with women. I love men, and I'm married, but I am <laughs> obsessed with understanding women and what motivates them to buy certain brands, what motivates them to have families, not have families. What, 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 what is driving them? What, what are they thinking? And I've been in the woman's space all my life. I started at Vogue magazine um, and had to write stories for Vogue and then Harper's Bazaar. I was a fashion editor, beauty and health editor. But I had to know what was happening with women because I had to write stories that I got graded on. My cover lines, I would get grades 
how many women read it, how many liked it. So that was really, those were the first 10 years of my life. And then um, I was obsessed, I tell the story with the James Bond movies, I had two brothers and they were always watching James Bond and I always wanted to be that Bond girl. So after having a baby, I thought, oh, you want to be that Bond girl? Well, you better start something on your own. So I started Lippy Taylor at home with a three-year-old and um, the company grew very quickly. And I decided, you know, uh, what are we going to be about? What is going to make us different? And it was about marketing to women and understanding women because I'd been studying them for so long. So that continues. We're very, very focused on women. We love men. We have men's products. But we know that it's women, that it's probably pushing them to buy, whether it's, whether it's a deodorant or a, a facial mask or, or, or even a car or insurance or which bank or which drugs do we use. It's, it's, it's the woman in the household. Um, she's either making the decision or she's influencing 15% and making 85%. So um, I guess the, the, the most beautiful thing in my life is certainly family first and foremost. And I think that's why I feel I'm a really kind of grounded person. I've always just been happy and love my life, love my family and love the women that I work for. I have the most extraordinary group of women, some of them I'm honored to have here tonight. That is the joy in my life, in addition to my family, is my, my family at Libby Taylor. And so many of them have been with me a long time and I'm very proud of that. Um, and it's just a very joyful existence. I guess if I had one thing I wished I had done, I guess it would be to have been more fearless in how I, looked at growing the company and maybe should have made a few acquisitions along the way, which, which, which a lot of companies did. Um, and, but I am very, very pleased with the growth of the company now. We're, we're a mid-size agency and we're very happy at the size we're at. And I love going to work every day. And that's something that I hope every woman at this table feels. And I don't get that horrible feeling on Sunday night where, oh God, I have to go back to work. <laughs> so, and I'm married to the love of my life. And again, family is everything. And I am so pleased that we're gonna jump in to these questions and hear what you stellar, incredible, intelligent women have to tell us to help other women with their careers, because God knows it's not easy for women. And I've always worked with women, so I, my perspective is, is not as, as diverse as yours is. Um, so thank you for giving me that time. Do you want to start with the first question, my I'd friend? I'd love to. Great, dig in. All right, so the first thing we're going to speak about is finding your voice. And there's been a lot published recently and a lot in the media about um, challenges for women to speak up and be heard as often as their male counterparts. So the question to you is, did you experience this? Um, how have you overcome it? And what advice do you have for women in their career who, who may see this as a challenge? And of course, if this wasn't the challenge for you, uh, maybe how did you help other women find their voice? I think there are two questions in the question that you just posed. One is Absolutely. the challenge in speaking up. Yes. Mm -hmm. One is the challenge in being heard. And I think that those two things are obviously related, but yes. I think that they are different. Um, probably to my own peril, I didn't have any problems speaking up when I was younger. I look back now and I wish I had not spoken up as much as I did. Um, Good point. But, but where I was successful in speaking up, I think it had to do with being fact-based. It always had to do with doing my homework. When I was young and, and earlier on in my career, 
if I knew the numbers, if I had the date, if I had the story, the company name, the person's name, whatever it was that lended itself to my being credible, uh, that was a huge advantage to me. I think that wears off over time. I think that as you get later into your career, you've got to be able to get to the point and speak to the language of, uh, in the language of business and make sure that you are talking not just as a communicator, but as a business person around the table. But that speaking up you know, has got its own set of fears and being heard, I think, sometimes is a separate issue. I also didn't have a problem with it. I think I, because I was a musical theater kid in high school, mm -hmm. who knows, mm -hmm. or um, I actually did. I sort of grew up in companies that were largely women-run also in the beauty sector, like like Maureen can attest to, lots of women in communications. So I always felt that I was in a safe space, you know, forgive the, the, the expression. Um, but w when I did start to be in environments where there were more men, I remember getting to Edelman um, six Oops. years ago, I'm like, oh, whoa, shocking, it's quite a few men here. I didn't work with these many men at DeVries um, or at L'Oreal. I think for me it then became the speaking up had to be even more, I think Kim's absolutely right, insight-based, fact-based, to break through, mm -hmm. to be heard in the room. But also I tended to react a lot when I spoke up, as opposed to responding thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to young women now, well, not just young women, anyone who's trying to learn how to communicate more effectively in a business environment, no matter what gender is sitting around the table, the ability to listen actively and thoughtfully um, formulate a response before just reacting so that you can get in, you know, especially in a big room of people. Um, and, and boy, oh boy, I'm still working on that. I think the tendency to just react so you can get your voice out there no matter what actually can, can undermine you. I came from the agency side, so I worked with mostly women for eight years. Even though I've only been in spirits, I was still on the agency side, which is mostly women. When I moved over to in-house, I am the one of the only women in any mid to senior level position. These are all men. Um, so every meeting that I'm in, it's all men over 50 years old. For the most part, no offense to younger men, but I see that they're all older. Um, they're all mostly of French descent. And so um, I think just building on what you're saying, it used to be where I would try to push to say something just to say something on the agency side. Um, it could be a little bit because you were on the client service side and you want to make sure that your client knew that you were interested in what they were saying or whatever. but. On this side, I just, I don't talk for the most part. I listen, and I'm a fly on the wall. And I ask to be included in as many meetings as I can, but nine out of 10 times, I don't say anything. I just want to absorb. But when I do say something, I'm listened to, and I think that's something to think about is, is active listening and also just being more strategic in when you talk. If I could add a, a, a practical side to that as well, I think the substantive points that have raised are important, but I, Early in my career, I was early and just starting out, and I worked with a big Texan who had a personality to go with it, who was instrumental in my career and, and had taught me has, has taught me a lot of lessons. But anytime I paused for a bit of air, he'd jump in, and I need you know. There was one day we were having a back and forth, and I and I put my hand up to just signal I'm not done talking yet, and I saw his eyes look at my hand, and he stopped himself because he didn't even realize what he was doing most of the time. So I think that there's also some practical, tactical elements mm -hmm. to uh, signaling that you're ready to command the floor or you're not yet done mm -hmm. speaking mm -hmm. that are helpful for women to think about. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very interesting. Good. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a physical stop and listen to me. Just, you know, gentle, it's a cue. But, mm -hmm. it's a cue. 
Can I ask a we quick question? Sure. Yeah. I'm just curious, Jennifer, did you experience, was there any blowback when you did that? Because I imagine that was a moment, right? Yeah. Did, was there any shock? No, yeah. and, and, and I think it's because, again, his intent was, I was with a junior person with a very senior person in the room for a reason. He wanted mm -hmm. me there. And I, he just really, I think, was not mindful of, of what he was doing. It's his personality. And it, it was it's an important part of being an agency person, too, to have that sort of mm -hmm. you know, assertiveness. Mm -hmm. um, so he actually was very receptive to mm -hmm. it. Great. All right. That's very interesting. I, um, we all know that the Me Too Hashtag Me Too was very important. We needed it and it, a lot of change and a lot of good change came out of it. But when I started hearing about it, and I'm sure I have a feeling every one of you felt this way, what's gonna happen with men and women in the workplace? Are senior men and even junior men going to want to go to conferences with the women? Are they gonna wanna go to those dinners where the client comes in and there's a lot of drinking? Are they going to want to just be in even in, a, in an office setting at night with women since Me Too and since their, their sensitivities have been elevated? And there's been a lot of reports. Um, the Lean In organization, Sheryl Sandberg's uh, organization, has a lot of statistics that are supporting the fact now that men are very concerned, not only at the senior level, but at the junior level as well. They don't want to go. They're not inviting senior women to go on trips, not yet, nor, nor junior women. They're not inviting them to big conferences. They're even excluding them at client dinners, again, because of drinking and the, and the fear that something could happen and the fear that something could happen with one of the women that works for them with a client. And if that situation arises, they know that they either have to eliminate the woman from the company or they have to get rid of the client. So it's a very slippery slope right now. And I just wondered if any of you, because you're mostly all in male and female um, directed companies, if you're feeling this, it's an unconscious bias, but I think it's happening and it's something we have to be aware of. And you know, I don't know where it's all gonna end, but I'm curious if you are hearing it, seeing it, feeling it. In your, in your work environments? I'd like to jump in on the Me Too question. Um, like all the questions that we deal with in our work, it, it provokes us to really have to think deeply yes. about right and wrong, good and evil. And I, I feel passionately that the Me Too moment was long overdue, mm -hmm. that it needed to happen, that things had existed in the workplace that were unfair and discriminatory and painful. I also believe in due process. And I think that men and people who are accused generally are also entitled to be heard and have a chance to be fairly judged. The second part of your question is really about how to cope with it in the workplace. And I think about that both as an executive and also as a client. And so as a client, whenever someone comes in to pitch me anything, I always ask, well, are there women on the team? Are there people of color on the team? Because more often, many times, you're, you know, you're received by a group of guys who haven't considered um, that you as a client have a great power, an enormous authority to be able to ask for slates of diverse uh, trusted partners. For myself, um, I, I think that it's important to, be, to refuse to be excluded. I learned to play golf 
just so I wouldn't be left behind when That's they great. all went That's out great. to play golf. That's great. Sarah. And you know, whether it's golf or a dinner mm -hmm. or an outing, I think it's really important to present yourself at the door with your suitcase mm -hmm. packed with the expectation that you're going. And don't necessarily wait for an invitation or someone to hold the door for you to walk through, but to present yourself as ready, willing, able, and expecting to be included. I just feel when you're Sally Sussman, you can do that. <laughs> but when you're you know, three levels down, and you didn't get well, the invitation to go on the pitch uh, or go on the trip, so what do those women, so what, what should a, they as, do? As senior women, Yes. Like all the women around this table, it then has a secondary responsibility to make sure that your people, your colleagues, the women in your division, that it holds true for them. So if you see a team forming around something, you say, well, what about Joanna? What about Jennifer? Mm -hmm. um, it's a great point that, mm -hmm. that you make, that there's a, an important uh, secondary responsibility, not just for yourself, mm -hmm. but for the, the women that you're leading. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people in those positions have a responsibility to take that forward. So when Me Too first came out, I sort of didn't know what to make of it, and I maybe came to some of the same conclusions that you're seeing in this data of maybe this will have a chilling effect, maybe this will hurt me in some way. But as time has gone on, I've just come to see how this movement has just seeped into the ether and in a way has redrawn the lines in terms of what's okay and what's not okay. And as uh, a person still coming up in her career, it's just been incredibly empowering. And I feel that it has been slow, but now maybe going back to our last question about you know the difficulties in speaking up, I feel that now it's my, not only do I have to speak up, it's my duty to speak up, because now is the time. The door has been opened, and if we don't walk through that door, it will close again. So I feel that we have really some business to take care of in front of us, and if men are gonna be scared, I would say that this is not the first time they've been scared of women, and I wouldn't <laughs> let any statistic change my behavior about what's right to do and how to move forward. Oh, good for you. Yes. And that, I hope that that sense of, of empowerment, self-empowerment, is something that you really drive at Mark to the women that work for you and the women below you and above you. I, I would because also, I think that yeah. has to happen. I just also want to add um, that Joanna works for a fantastic CEO. Ken Frazier is a model of inclusiveness for women, for people of color. I happen to think uh, Al Albert Borla, CEO of Pfizer, the same. but. We have choices as to where we work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to choose to work in the places where your voice can be heard mm -hmm. and where the door is going to be open and to not work in the places where it doesn't. And seeing it from some leaders, just to finish that thought, like Ken, who takes something like the Me Too movement, which could be seen as divisive between men and women. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that he does and leaders can do well is to flip that and say, Really, we have to focus on what brings us together, and our culture should be all about these values of inclusiveness mm -hmm. and diversity and justice mm -hmm. and freedom. And that's actually what brings us together rather than divide us. What this brings to mind for me is thinking about Me Too and also thinking about, I mean, to Sally's earlier point about just sort of broader questions of diversity. And 
What I notice is, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization, so wait for it. Please do. Okay. Um, I think that we run the risk of becoming paralyzed in corporate America because we are so terrified of doing it wrong. And I think the, and I think as senior leaders in our organizations, I feel personally it's my responsibility to help create, in whatever format, safe spaces for really brave conversations, so that a male colleague would feel able to say to me, I need to tell you something, and I'm uncomfortable doing it, but I really want you on this team. There's gonna be a lot of late nights. We will be traveling together, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm uncomfortable. I don't know how to engage you around that, or whatever the words are. Um, much less conversations in the workplace about microaggressions and inequities You know that have to do more about all of the company cultures and systems that are below the surface of the iceberg that are perpetrating um, discriminatory behavior. We don't know how to talk about this in the day in and day out of our just sort of daily work lives. So I wish I had something intelligent to say that was more solution focused there. I'm just acknowledging that whether it's the chilling effect of Me Too on women getting to be at the table or just the day in and day out difficult conversations we need to have in the spirit of continuing to advance, not just diversity and inclusion, but equity. It, it's hard, and I, I think we have a lot of work to do. I think this chilling effect is real, but I do know many good men who don't want to go to strip clubs and who don't play golf and who are a little relieved in some respects, even though they do feel that nervousness that they're all describing, who are a little relieved that maybe they don't have to do that anymore either. Mm. And maybe that's me being the eternal optimist, but uh, I, I think that that's a, that's a kind of a reason for hope. And at my last company, there was a moment in time when one of our most senior executives was terminated. And that is the word that was used in the news release. And there was not a lot of debate about it, which I was really proud of. And I think everybody involved with this was also really proud of. There wasn't an attempt to hide what had gone on. The, the details of it don't matter. It was in violation of my company's code of conduct. But when he was terminated, and at the level that he was at, and the company spoke as freely using those words, I think that our entire employee population, but probably most importantly, our female population thought, wow, the rules really do apply to everybody. You know, even the most senior people. This code of conduct stuff is not just for kind of the bottom half of the company. And, and that made it real to people, that there were real consequences no matter who you were. So actions speak louder than words on that front. I think it's so important that we all realize that men are, are critical to our success. And if we go on, this, on the side of it's all about women, if we don't embrace, like in our industry, the leaders in the public relations industry, things are never going to change. And I think we, you also mentioned, Sally, about diversity. Until clients demand, when you come in to present your program, if they do not demand that you bring a diverse group of people, people of color, women, it, we as an industry are just going to not make diversity a priority and we all say you know it's so hard and there are, there is not a lot of diversity in public relations but the day that clients demand it that's when we will all go out and find really great women and great and great people of color so I think that's you know embracing men and understanding how to work with them um, is really important I, I also just wanted to talk about the the confidence gap. There's a lot of talk about women who show that they're empowered and they have a lot of confidence 
are are not respected many times in business. Although men who show that they are extremely confident and even overconfident seem to be the heroes, and women get punished for it sometimes. You're, you know, you're. You're just a little too confident, mm. Missy. S sit down, and we'll let, let's hear what the guys have to say. Um, how do we get past that? You know, you're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. How do we feel the the the, the confidence to tout how good we are, how smart we are, the work that we did, and demand when we sit in front of HR or sit in front of our bosses that this is the work I've done. I'm proud of it, and I think that I deserve this, this, and this. How do we get past this idea that women are not supposed to be so confident? It's not a good thing, but it's okay for men. Mm -hmm. And they can be overconfident and they get rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. And women don't. They get, there's a prejudice towards overly confident women. And, and to add to what you're saying, you know, in, in my career, often the, um, the bad word was ambition. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard this, but oh, you're, you're ambitious. Yeah, you're. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and that was never a positive term when someone used it. Uh, and, and yet it is a trait that we need in our companies, to be ambitious and to set goals and, and to go further. Uh, and and the, other, the other thing that you all probably heard as well is um, people are intimidated. And, and, and it's brought to you as though, you know, it's your fault. You know, people are intimidated, you need to fix it. Um, and so I, I would put that element in as well because I'm sure those are things that, that we've heard and that people who are trying to be ambitious and advance their careers are hearing. What advice can we give and how, how did you address it in your career and, and what could someone do to feel a little more confident in expecting that and knowing how to, to respond in a gracious way? Where's the balance? You know, where is it okay but you can't <laughs> go beyond that or you're determined to be who ambitious? The, the question and the, uh, the comments you're raising about ambition and confidence is multifactorial in yes. how it plays out Absolutely. in the workplace. Um, and we've all sat around the table where maybe someone's being considered for a promotion, and often with a guy, they'll say, oh, I know he can do it. I just know he can do it. I can feel it. And there might be a woman who's done it three times in four different ways, yes. and they're just not sure. Yes. She's kind of got what it takes. Obviously, speaking up on behalf of someone else in mm -hmm. those circumstances is very important that you're advocating for um, a female colleague as opposed to advocating for yourself. But I think the ultimate um, move here, and I know many people around this table have made bold moves in their careers, is the willingness to leave. Mm -hmm. And if, if women just say, you know, I should have gotten that job, or I deserve this, or I'm underpaid, mm -hmm. But you sit there and continue to exist in that environment, it's uh, demeaning and it, it, it provides others the opportunity to demean you. And if you think that you're not being fully appreciated or the opportunities don't exist for you, I say make the move mm -hmm. and try another place. You get the mm -hmm. benefit of learning because you're in a new sector or you know the, mm -hmm. the onboarding into a new company. Mm -hmm. Because I think that men have been willing to do that over yes. time, and I would encourage women to do the same. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. That's usually not in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not working for you. So leave. Mm -hmm. You don't see that in the books. It's all the things that you have to do to be successful. But if it's not working, you gotta leave. Exactly. How simple is that? 
That's the title of your book. You gotta leave. <laughs> I'm writing a lot of books, but um, you know, I, I, I just started to finish real quick. I, I worked at American Express for three years, and then I left to go work for President Clinton. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, American Express called me back a year and a half later to run their corporate affairs in Europe based out of London. I don't think they would have considered me for that position if I had just stayed in-house with yes. them for those years. Absolutely. There's a lot to be said. Sorry to mention. Yeah, that's okay. I was going to say, at, at big companies in particular, I think it's easy enough to change policy. What's difficult is changing behavior across yes. the board. Uh, and it's often the case that data rooms run, uh, rule supreme at big companies. So some of, some of the practices that we've tried to implement to combat this exact problem is having a third party from our talent organization sit in and listen to reviews and talent assessments um, to say, oh, are we only using that term sharp elbows for women? Because mm -hmm. it would seem yes. in this many interviews or this many talent discussions, that's been the case. Wow. And presenting back the data and the facts to the men who are embracing these views without often realizing it and making them more aware of what they're doing. So I, I think that there are some exercises and some practices that we can start to put in place that bring awareness to the behavior and help drive change. That's great. There was a study in 2017 from Harvard Business Review that looked at one company, 400 people, really trying to get under this problem of why are men rising through the ranks and why are women not? And they searched through all their emails, their calendars, they wore biometric mo you know, monitoring so they can see who they spoke with. And the study found when they you know, made it anonymous, looked at the data, that actually the networks and the behaviors of the men and women were exactly the same. Interesting. And the big finding then is it's not that women are overconfident mm -hmm. or lean in or they're too ambitious. It's just that there's bias out there. Yeah. Unconscious. Unconscious yeah. bias. Oh, I find that so discouraging. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I always like that study, even though it's one company, always made me really hold up these kind of things that women are to this, to mm -hmm. that, and to say, is are they in fact to anything, or are they just fine the way they are, mm -hmm. and it's really the world that needs to start to shift around them. I come from an interesting background because I was on the media side, on the agency side, and so I was solely based on generating results. Mm -hmm. So my whole career was virtually continuing to push my successes. KPIs. Exactly. And so, you know, it was one of those things that I didn't really know anything different. And so when I started grooming teams, I forced my girls on my team and women, you know, some of them were girls, some of them were women at the time. I said, you need to show what you're doing. Anytime you want to tell me, look what I did. I know it sounds so elementary, but it's not. And so when I moved over to in-house and I worked mostly with men, I started doing the same thing. And I did it in a strategic way, but the way in which I would you know, in some sense, holistically package up and merchandise what my team has done, I still do that. Mm -hmm. And I find value in that because, you know, especially when you work for a big organization, if you don't fight for yourself, mm -hmm. no one is gonna fight for you. So mm -hmm. if you aren't the one to put that paper on the table to show mm -hmm. what your team has done, it's never gonna be there. That's important. a great point. Yeah. Absolutely. It's bold, and you have to be bold. I think there's this, um, there's this added layer of, of this conversation, which is sort of about you know demographic cohorts, because I think if you layer and forgive me, because I'm about to talk about your dem your cohort, um, Taylor, but I, I'm actually I would like to strike from the record the word entitled in connection to 
millennial employees because first of all millennials are turning 40 soon so let's get over the fact that they're all like teenagers <laughs> right wandering around you know the workplace in glitter makeup like it's absurd um that's gen z and we've got those too but that's another panel discussion but yes. i think that there is um I really work very hard with my younger employees to, to strike entitled out of my own brain because if somebody comes to me confidently, as you're talking about, Taylor, with concrete results that they produced, that's not entitled. No, that's, I did this. Mm -hmm. There's not even editorializing there. Mm -hmm. I accomplished these results. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I'm ready for my next opportunity mm -hmm. or whatever. And I think there's, you know, your reaction came to like, oh God, like it is mm -hmm. so, the world needs fixing. There's so much editorializing, mm -hmm. sharp elbows, the mm -hmm. metaphors that are used. Mm -hmm. You know, if we just, if we're, the, we're reviewing our own employees or advocating for ourselves, if we stick to behaviors and facts, I think it's harder and harder to create confidence as a pejorative. And so, I mean, I was six months into my, my relatively new role as Scholastic, and I felt it was time for me to give a progress report to my CEO and my chief strategy officer of what I had accomplished since I had been there because they hired me to be a change maker. So there was no question about that being sort of too aggressive mm -hmm. or, well, look at her promoting herself. I was like, they want to know what I've done. Absolutely. It's my responsibility to tell them. And I told them, you know, and I just stated the facts. So I think there's part of this is the, the, the performance review process, how we train people to give feedback, um, which is kind of broken, um, I think, in a lot of companies and distinguishing behaviors, as you said, from the editorializing around the behavior, mm -hmm. which is where some of these images persist. Mm -hmm. I think also sometimes it's the most simplistic things. You see men walk up to other men and say, I did this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. And then he goes, good job. And the person walks away. So sometimes I'll walk up and again, you want to have strategy in what you're doing. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's a lot of you know, research, too, about men that just, you know, kind of start to... Um, promote the work that they're doing when that's part of their day job, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I, I did the thing that you asked me to do. Thank you so much. Okay, go get a cookie. Like, you know, so, so it's, but, it, but it's kind of looking at some of, of that behavior to say, maybe we take it too seriously. Maybe we don't have to have a formal presentation. At times, it sounds like we do. If it's a review, if you're coming in in a new company and you want to sit down with pen and paper, but sometimes it's just having those conversations where if you see the CEO, if you're, I mean, for me, my CEO, um, he travels a lot. So when he's in town and I have an opportunity to catch up, I tell him a little bit about what's been going on, you know, and it doesn't have to be something, you know, so formal, but he gets it. And he learns in a few minutes, that team, her team, they're doing stuff. Mm -hmm. And men like to know, what are they doing? What are they accomplishing? Are they sitting around? Are they actually generating results? And so if you can do that in a perfect, you know, in a more of a formal setting or even in a casual setting, I think you get your point across. The same I, way. I think it's important to balance I versus we because I think a lot of women have been told mm. that it's not attractive to say I mm -hmm. and that I is a dirty word. Yes. And so it's always we. And, and when a compliment is paid to us, we say, oh, it wasn't me. It was, it was the, the team. team. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that you that should not give credit yeah. where credit is due. But I don't think I is a dirty word. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's a role for I and there is a role yep. for we. And I think they both need to be Absolutely. in our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. You know, something that I kind of reject from the achievement accomplishment standpoint, it's the, what I think of as sort of the, the pink washing of female success. I don't know if you all you know notice this the way that I do, but there are some women I really admire in business, including women around this table, and I see these things like, you know, tips and tricks, you know, from female <laughs> leaders about how to break through in the C-suite. And I think, 
I don't want to be in the tips and tricks <laughs> article. I mean, um, even Hall of Femme, which is full of spectacular, accomplished women. I think it was Gail Hyman recently who said, you know, someday I want to be known for being in that pantheon of leaders, mm -hmm. not for being in the pantheon of female yes. leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to sort of fight to, to make sure that we are competing, you know, sort of in a unisex playing field, mm -hmm. not just in the girls club and rising mm -hmm. to the top. I think that's really important. And you hear that more and more. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be recognized as being a, a powerful woman. I want to be recognized as being powerful and successful in the in the in the entire sphere of it's being as well. Right? I don't exactly. want to be an amazing female. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Amazing there's yep. another side to that though, which I've worked with a lot of senior women who have shied away from that and not spoken out on women's issues because of that very mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. However, there is a need and an appetite for women to see other women succeed and to have true. Sure. women celebrated. It's why we're here. So it's, <laughs> it's a balance. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's to, to your point yeah. about the, the confidence and, and how that's received, it's not only men who expect women to be nice. It's women who expect women to be nice. Mm -hmm. And be so, in their place. Exactly. In their place. So mm -hmm. I, I think we all have to take uh, and I'll analyze our own behaviors and our own reactions and make sure that we're not part of the problem as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point. You know, this whole thing about discussing your success, Paul and I were on a call just today with the CCO from a major packaged goods company who said, you know, our, our brand director told us that the work is stellar and I said to him, well, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Nobody, nobody has shown it to me in the last six months, and we never thought to send it to her. Mm. You know, he, he's really the boss, but she's the boss. She's the woman that decides what agency gets in the next pitch. And she really kind of um, taught us a big lesson. If you're not marketing to me, and you don't think of me as your boss, and you don't mm. show me your good work, I'm not gonna think about you yeah. for the next pitch. Mm. So we're a lot of, you know, there's a lot of women, we, we just, we have to be more conscious about making sure that everybody sees the good work. Maureen, I know you're the moderator, not me, but I wonder if I could just pose a question Please. as well yes. to what you just described. Absolutely. Do you think that's because, in some respects, we are, as agency people, respecting the client relationship, and we're being good girls, so yes. to speak, because you are my place. client, and I will count on you to merchandise the work to your boss. Exactly. Because exactly. if I do that, I'm going over your head, or need to seek your permission, or maybe sort of discounting you in the process right. because you are, in fact, our gatekeeper. Absolutely, and since we were little girls, we were taught not to do that, even with our siblings. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that is a big part of it. But she opened the door and she gave us permission to be able to market to her directly the successes that we had. But it's not, it's again, another unconscious way of kind of staying in our place. Mm -hmm. So we've got to get past this, and we will, and I think we are. But that was a big lesson just today. But, and I think Taylor made a great point about this, which is there's lots of informal ways to do what we're talking about here, just to keep people apprised yes. of your work. Yes. And if, if you're at all reluctant to do it for yourself, let's do it for the people who work for us. Yes. Yeah. Because our teams are watching us, and if we're not right. saying, you know, like, wow, Taylor did a great work. job on this, then they, I think they will feel very un, underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And they are, mm -hmm. if that's not happening. Mm -hmm. That was great. That's a great question. Great, great, great feedback. Next. Next. You've got the next, next. one. Uh, next, we're going to talk about being a lone wolf. Um, 
And we know that here in 2019, out of the Fortune 500, there's only 25 female CEOs, so that's about 6%. Um, we know there is a lack of, we've talked about it already tonight, you, you've said you're the only female in many of the meetings you go to. Uh, we all know what it's like to be the only woman in the room, maybe the only person under 50 in the room, maybe the only American in the room, and you can keep adding on and adding on your characteristics. But many of us have had that experience where we are the only one representing our views. Um, and and that, that's a different experience than our male counterparts have mm -hmm. in many cases. So the question is, is two parts. How have you navigated this in your career? And what have you done to change it? And what can you advise people who are experiencing this for the first time? I, I, I think back to the time I, I hired, uh, I did a, a hire for a company in Germany, and um, I hired this amazing, talented man, and I told him, you will be the only black person on the entire campus. And you know, the person had to stop and think, okay, do I want to be the first person and be the only one in the room with thousands of people on this campus of a global company. Um, and, and how does that feel? And how do you change it? And how do you bring in those people who are going to be the first and then enable them to not be the first because they can now bring in additional people to change the culture? And, and those changes are long lasting, but they're very difficult. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. And you can pick any of those questions to start with. I can, I can start. Um, so I created last year the first B2B vertical. Um, there's a three-tier system in alcohol, so we can't sell directly to the end consumer. Uh, so we have to work with distributors. Um, and so <clears throat> talking about, excuse me, being in meetings just with men, at that point, um, there was no system in place as to how we communicated with our distributors. And you're talking about mostly men, in their late 60s, 70s years old, in the middle of America that quite frankly had absolutely no interest in getting to know me. And there was a pivotal moment. Um, I, I knocked on doors for the first six months of my job. Um, I came from the media side. Day one they said, we're not interested in traditional media here, so I had to find my value again and I didn't know what I was to do. So I, I was recommended to tour the country and meet all these salesmen. Uh, so I went to 14 states. I met with 300 people, and out of the 300, about 280 were men. Uh, and so there was this pivotal moment where I wasn't really being taken seriously, and they kind of were trying to figure out who I was, why I mattered, did I matter, yeah. Yeah. and why was I worth their time. And um, there's a general manager in Texas named Mike. He wears a cowboy hat, and he forgot that I was flying in to meet him. So I planned a whole trip to Texas, and he forgot. So he said, I got you a sandwich. Here's your sandwich. I'm sorry, I won't have time to see you. And um, the CCO of the company, I now report to two C-suite. I report to the one female C-suite um, and the chief commercial officer who's part of the fifth or sixth generation of, of our company. And a few weeks later, nothing was said. Uh, he flew to Texas to do his annual review, and this man has been working at the company for 20 something years and he thought it would be like gravy. He's gonna walk in, have his review, they're gonna have some drinks, they're gonna have a nice time and then it's over. And Julian is his name, he stopped and he said, 
before we go any further, you will never do that to Taylor or any woman ever again. And so there was that that moment in my in my career where I realized that whether it's a man or a woman, you're going to have that protection. And so now I, I pushed last month to also report directly to him as well. Um, but I, I kind of found that ah, moment where he was my way of he was my my guiding light in this company, and he has been for two years ever since. So yeah. it was just a great story. Great story for him. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's an educator that. Um, we've worked with at Scholastic. He's come in and done some talks uh, to us. He's very, very focused on equity in education, and particularly literacy. And I love listening to him because I take life lessons from him that apply all over the place. And just thinking about your storyteller, which is amazing. That guy's a badass. <laughs> um, this educator I'm talking about gave me the distinction I had never thought about before. Because we think about uh, allies a lot, right? How often do we talk about the need to be an ally in corporate America? Or frankly, just to be an ally so that you can use your platform of power and privilege to help elevate or give voice to people who don't have it. And the distinction was not just an ally, but an accomplice. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that you can't just, being an ally is stating that I stand with you, whether you're the lone wolf woman or you're the person of color at the table. Um, but if you're an accomplice, you're gonna like do for that person. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful example of what an accomplice does. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that a lot. I think about how can I be an accomplice mm-hmm. to people who, because I'll be honest, at, you know, 27 years, and I do find myself sometimes, even as scholastic in rooms with all men, I'm fine now, I wasn't always. Yeah. Um, so where I'm now focused more is how can I either be an ally or an accomplice or help find other accomplices within the organization to help protect, but but in a way that lifts up and empowers, not sort of coddling mm-hmm. um, people who are marginalized for whatever reason, whether it's gender, sexual orientation, um, race, whatever. But I love that distinction. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Okay. There's there's also this this happens so often in in the workplace kind of domestic responsibilities, things that get in the way. You have a child, you have a parent who is sick. You have to go home because your husband isn't well. And it just seems that when it happens to women, and the the research shows that there is a bias in the workplace when it happens to women way more than when it happens Mm. to men. I'm just curious as to what you do in your larger corporations when women have to take a leave of absence and they have to have time at home. How, how do you guys handle that? What, what, what are the rules and the regulations and what is allowed, what isn't, or is it open whenever, you know, if you need to take time off, you can take it off. And then we'll, we'll talk later about moms and, and um, flex time because that's another issue, but this is just personal responsibilities and how the workplace handles that and how should they handle it and how do women speak up for their rights when they have a situation and they have to take time off. Any, any, any thoughts about that? Well, um, the question of time off and leave, I, I think it's um, a, a fairly well debated conversation and I think most of the big companies, um, certainly these around the table, have fairly generous leave policies for family leave, you know, support, uh, personal days as necessary. But I think, Maureen, your question gets at something 
even below the surface, which is what happens when people feel they have to take leave. And I know many women who don't want to put that they're running out to see their kids' yeah. softball game, so they'll put in a fake meeting. But I recently came across a woman executive um, who told me that she blocks out in her calendar time for her exercise, yeah. time for her hair, mm -hmm. and that she does it very visibly and openly on her shared calendar mm -hmm. because men will make time yeah. to go to the yeah. gym, mm -hmm. they'll make time to go to their kids thing without any reservation mm -hmm. in it. She was doing this very openly to set an example mm -hmm. that because she, she's, yeah, she's, she's a high performer, She's a big deal, and she does this purposefully to set an example. Mm -hmm. Great, that's uh, that's great. I would love to meet her. I think I don't know if I would have the courage to put in hair salon. Well, you know that mm -hmm. hair takes a lot of time. I know. <laughs> this was a Huffington Post. Yeah. Uh, I have a meeting in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Client meeting. Right. Yeah. Ariana Huffington just wrote about this this week, and she was encouraging women to rewear their outfits visibly uh, in, in public sectors because she says <laughs> there's, there's yeah. a tax on the time it takes for you and the expectation that you're not wearing the same suit every day. Mm. And, and that, that takes time and thought and energy away from what you could be doing. So she's, she was very, and, and at first and it's only she could. Right? Only she could. Get away, and get away with thought, it. Why is this a thing? And then it, it, is a, it, is a, it is a different thought process that, you know, if you wear the same thing every day and it's accepted, uh, as opposed to, of course, mm. we, we don't wear the same. I, I mean, I miss my all girls Catholic school uniform some days <laughs> because it's just so much easier in terms of time investment. But that's a really good example yeah. of how to, to make it explicit of mm -hmm. here's what it takes. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I, I am not a mom, which doesn't mean that I don't have my own personal life and my own demands mm. and things that are important to me. And this is something that Jen and I were talking about uh, a little earlier before our panel discussion because I've thought a lot about that because as I look to attract talent and look at young working parents, mm -hmm. what I don't want them to think is she will not respect you know, the obligations and the oh, things that are important yeah. to me because yeah. she yeah. is not a parent herself. Yeah. And back to the female kind of stereotype, she's some sharp-elbowed, ambitious female who gave that up who didn't choose to have who doesn't that. get it, right? And I try really hard early on to get to know people just as human beings, to know what's important to them, whether or not they are parents, and to try to set up a dialogue where they will respect my commitments and I will respect theirs, yes. and we're allowed to have different things that are important to us. And so if, if someone is a young parent and has got to be at that thing at 5 o'clock on Tuesday, and I've got a class or something or a social engagement that's 5 o'clock on Thursday, that we're going to try to work together mm -hmm. to make sure that Whatever the work is that we have to get done works around the things that it's important to both of us to be able to do outside of the office. Mm -hmm. And I found that that trait is often well received yes. yep. and kind of disarming and surprising to people who expect that if they're not working for an, a parent who gets it, mm -hmm. that they may have an additional hurdle that they've got to get over. That is such an interesting mm -hmm. subject about women who don't have children and are, is, and well, we're talking a lot about unconscious biases, but there are so many, that people would perceive you to be a more difficult manager, mm -hmm. you'll have too much time in the office, you won't be leaving at 6 or 6.30, right. and uh, is that the boss that I want to work for? I, that's 
very, very interesting. And I haven't thought about that, but I frequently think about how open we are now. Well, there's so many women, I have so many friends who don't have children, mm. and there, I just feel there isn't a bias when mm. you decide to have children. And there's, I have some young women in my life who have made the decision, I'm not, I don't want children. Um, and it's, it seems to be okay these days. Mm -hmm. But in the workplace, there could be absolutely a bias to that person. I never thought about that. That's very interesting. So we have, that's another thing we have to check off of and eliminate that bias. Just on the agility note, I'm in a unique situation. My husband lives full time in Germany. Uh, so it's a little bit long distance. Um, so <laughs> just a bit. Um, wasn't the intent. Uh, so anyway, so our company, it's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, so we're fully agile. Um, you do not have to work at a desk. So we're headquartered um, in the United States, in New York. Our global headquarters is in Paris. We have brand companies all over the world. So most of my work is globally, so I don't have to be necessarily at a desk in New York. Um, but my fear about being fully agile um, is that my team is going to get used to that type of environment. And some of them that are more junior, what's to come? If mm -hmm. they never have to learn how to work with, you know, I, I remember the days at my first agency where I wouldn't leave until my boss left or things like that. And so I think that's a very, the way in which culture, you know, internal culture is changing, you know, it's moving more towards that. You don't have a desk, you don't need to be there. And I think for women, it's, it's very liberating. I have a lot of women that I work with that don't feel any pressure. They never have to put a note saying that they're picking their child up or they have a therapy you know, session or they're getting acupuncture. So it works, it kind of works in both ways. I think it's so, it's so liberating for me to, I can fly anytime I want and see my husband or mm -hmm. if my colleague has a baby, she can do whatever she wants and no one will ask a question. But I think when we have more junior people on the team, whether they're women or men, it does concern me a little bit because I'm concerned what's to come if they leave an organization like that. Maybe another company will be like that, but maybe not. So, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something I think every business owner is grappling yeah, with. Exactly. And leadership teams are grappling with. There's a flip side to that too. I think it's great what you just described. But sometimes there's that feeling of, I'm not physically there, therefore I better show them I'm paying attention. Sure. Therefore I better be emailing back from, you know, something can't sit for five minutes sure, you know, while you're eating dinner or trying to be with your kids or do whatever else might be important to you. So Work for a French company. They're a little bit more lax. June through September. And all of December. <laughs> that leads into another question. I can't avoid bringing Absolutely. it up right now. And it's the whole working moms and what's called the flexibility fallacy. And this is very personal to me because I wrote an article about it just talking about the data. Pew, the Pew, Pew Research and Harvard did a study and what came out of the study is that women who take, who decide that they want to have children and they decide to take three or four days off and work from home, there is such a bias against them mm -hmm. and they're not only do the bosses look down upon it, but colleagues do too. And they, what, what is happening according to the research is that they do not get the promotions, they don't get the same amount of money, they're not thought of as great new business people because they're not present. And it's, mm. a, real, it's a real dilemma. In our, in our office, all our moms have one day if they want, um, and that can be whatever day they want. And we have some people who work from home. We have someone in DC who works um, from home five days. 
and there are some that work three. But I think this is for women that really want to get into the C-suite, that they have to understand that there is this bias and there, there is this, this, this the whole um, attitude about flex time is not always complimentary if you want to be that woman that is the CEO. For those moms that want to work hard and make money and, and work from home three days a week, it's absolutely fine for them. They're happy and they make their money and everybody's happy. It's a win-win. But the research says for those women that want to be in the C-suite, it's something they just have to just know about. And I, you know, I, I was just writing about the, the data and this is something that we need to know about. And there was a lot of unconscious bias towards me, not only in the industry, but also I, I had to deal with this inside my own company because it wasn't an opinion. It was just, here's the data. We have to, data is data. And we have to, like, at least as women, we have to know. We have to know what the data says and what it's showing. And it really, it surprised me. And we've been grappling with flexibility for years, as is, I think, every every company. Yes. Um, so I just wondered how, because Taylor, you, you brought it up, how you guys are handling this in the, in the workplace. So I'll say something that might be a bit provocative to that, which I, I don't think it's just bias. I think that there are real impacts to working from home totally three days a week. A big part of how I'm able to do my job is based on the relationships mm -hmm. that I have internally, sure. understanding yes. where people stand on specific yes. issues, mm -hmm. being able to walk down the hall and have an informal conversation. And those things come from being present. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is a cost to be paid. Yes. Um, there, there are biases in the system for sure, but I think that there are real consequences. Mm -hmm. And, and trade-offs. Um, yes. You know, these are uh, mature trade-offs that people can make. If you prefer a more flexible schedule and you're prioritizing mm -hmm. your home life, that is completely legit. But I believe that if you want to get into the C-suite, you have to prioritize, as you say, Jen, being present. Um, much of the work that we do is not book learned, but it is learned through the apprenticeship of working with other people, experience, time. Um, just this week, I, I meandered down the, the aisle and I sat down with some people and we resolved in 10 minutes mm -hmm. something that would have taken us 10 days on email. Yes. We just you <laughs> yeah. know hashed it out. My office is next door to our CEO's office and I watch all day long what's going on, who's coming in, who's going out mm -hmm. and it's, it's a price you pay because it's an investment in yourself. Sure. And it's, as you say, provocative or even unpopular mm. to say these things right now where work from home and flex time is a big issue. And it's not that I'm against it, mm -hmm. but I think people should be um, pragmatic and cognizant and aware that there are trade-offs to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think that if you want to be remote for whatever period of time, at whatever period in your life, it's easier to be remote as an individual contributor, yes, as sure. a spectacular science writer or mm -hmm. speech writer or someone who's pitching the media and, and sitting alone doing that versus being a leader of people, a runner of a function, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that do require physical presence to be able to coach people on the spot, on the fly, not by appointment because you booked a call at 4 o'clock mm -hmm. on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I think that we have to allow for you know, people's life changes and priorities to shift. 
and you know that obviously that course balance. to reach the C-suite mm -hmm. you know may not be 20 years of working from home mm -hmm. there may be a period with young children and then things may bounce back to right. a more regular kind Which of schedule. Which is totally fair mm -hmm. but it's a difficult moment to manage right so people come yes. into the workforce with their expectations I as a mother also should be expected to hear and understand those expectations yet I have a suite of executives that are there every day um, who don't themselves take flex time mm -hmm. so it's kind of complicated mm -hmm. so you want to be offering that um, flexibility and that option but the truth is is that the work is in office so it's not a perfect fix yet I think probably over time we'll get better at this and it'll be a little bit more seamless mm -hmm. but I definitely see a clash between expectations and then the work that needs to be done mm -hmm. I add something to that. So I, I have three children, and for a period of time, did work from home one day a week because I thought I should, and because it gave me extra time with my kids. And then after doing that for I don't know about a year, I thought I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at home trying to work, feeling like I need to put in a load of laundry, going to bed. Yeah. For me, the actual separation is actually <laughs> helpful, mm -hmm. and I think. Sometimes working mothers put more pressure on themselves uh -huh. on both ends of the spectrum as mothers and as mm -hmm. as professionals than others are. Yeah, nobody so said it would be easy. I, when I started the company, I started it from home, and it grew so quickly. I had a child who was coming home and he, mommy I'm home he race into the office and if I was on the phone with a client mm -hmm. somebody would tackle him and pull him back <laughs> so the message to my boy was mommy's home but she's not home for me so yeah. that didn't work either yeah. so I very quickly within six months took an office space so that he knew when I was home at six o'clock I was all his God knows it's not easy and we're all all trying to figure it out but I think um, knowledge is, is, is an information that sets you free. And to know that there is data out there, it's important to know what the data is showing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's, I, I do think it's getting better. I, I feel, um, it, it, at, at least at Libby Taylor, that there's more of a balance. And, and it isn't coming up as often as it did, say, a year ago. So we'll, we'll see. We'll but see I, but I agree with Jennifer. It's great to be a mom, and it's great to have my career. It's horrible to try to do both of them at the same time. Yes. <laughs> I definitely want to keep that separate. Yeah. That feels the best, you know? There's no, there's no question about that. I will add uh, to what Sally said. It is a choice. So the data that you shared is also helpful for people who want to accelerate their ascent to the C-suite. So I had a rather rapid ascent to a chief title in a company of 120,000 people. And I made that choice that there was no flex time. Uh, yes, I had a German contract with great vacation and great time off. But if the priority is for that time in your life, if the priority is your career, you can also make the choice to give up that flexibility and be visible and, and increase your trajectory. And, and that, you know, like everything we have, it's a choice. And now I prioritize my life and my family more than, than my career. And I'm not going to give up my weekends and my evenings and my vacation. But, but it is, if, if that's your priority to get to the C-suite, you can make a choice, okay, that's more important to me right now than the flex time. And I think that that's helpful for women to know if, if they're making decisions about their career. Mm -hmm.
I thought so too, but it didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have a great. What are you saying? No, it, it was it's it was very dicey. This was about a year ago, and it was a very dicey issue um, amongst women all over, mm -hmm. and certainly at, at my company too. And I, mm -hmm. I I think we've all settled in and and worked it out. At least I hope we have, because mm -hmm. we want to be able to give women what they need and mm -hmm. give them the balance that they need. But also, they need to make choices based on based on data, based on research, and, and, and it's their choice to make any way they want. We, we will accept it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did you have? I do. So one, one of the questions, uh, if, if we're talking about making choices, is uh, how to make a name for yourself. Mm -hmm. How do you become known for something? What is your brand? And I, I, you know, I come across this a lot when you speak to someone and they're, they're, you can see in their mind they're trying to put you in a box. Mm -hmm. What box are you in? Are you in communications? Are you in healthcare? Are you in, and, and they, they start, to, are you in data? Are you in medicine? And what's your box? What are you known for? What is it that is, <coughs> when someone introduces you, oh, that person is this. And, and so the question is a little bit of, do you advise leaning into that early in your career, or at what point of your career, leaning into that and, and establishing that name for yourself, or do you advise um, looking to broaden your experience, or what you're probably going to say is do both, Le you know, get as much experience in as many fields, but lean into being an expert in something. Mm -hmm. uh, but but what, have, what have you done, and would you do it again, and what advice do you have for women who are deciding, do I stay and stay in this one path and become the expert in this space, or do I try to broaden and diversify? I was a specialist for so long, and I think, mm -hmm. in my from my point of view, I think starting out in your career in order to make a name for yourself, it is important to be that person in that field. And I was that person in alcohol, and then it's not a bad field, so to speak. So to speak, right? right. All under the legal confines. Um, but then I think as you grow, I think you are expected to push yourself out of your comfort zone and do things that aren't really things that you've done before. And I think as I've been able to grow, and I'm still growing. Every day, I'm, I feel proud that I learn new skills. I'm, I'm like tackling new hurdles that I never even thought were possible because I think I was so comfortable in what I knew I did pretty well. And then after that point, once I, the two years ago, I, I started day one. And they said that's well and good, but you know it's not of any value. Then you know you're in uncharted waters. So um, one of my um, mentors is um, the global CMO of another tequila brand, and he said, you know, as you continue to progress, there's something to be said for learning as many skills as you can. So who knows? You can be a CEO at some point if you want to be, if you can learn various parts of a business. And so I think you know now being fully integrated into sales and the only woman in the sales department, um, I think is you know the next step. And who knows after that? I may take more executive classes, and so it just, I think at some point it just opens opens the horizon if you are at that level. You know, I think a wide experience is never a bad thing, although it's dangerous to, you know, spend 20 years getting such broad experience that you become, what, it's sort of a jack of all trades and a master mm -hmm. of none. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's as simple as the way we might think about it growing up in the agency world where it's like I'm a media expert or mm -hmm. I'm a digital expert mm -hmm. or I'm, you know, the IR expert necessarily. There's a skill-based expertise that we can use to define ourselves. But when I think about some of the people who have been most valuable to me in corporate and in agency settings, they are usually the people, when I'm thinking about them and talking about them, where 
I'll say or someone else in the room will say, she's so creative, we have to have her at the table. Yes. Or this is a really difficult client, she's an amazing client person. You know, she just has a way of being able to break through and get to the heart of the problem. So I think there are other things to be known for mm -hmm. that, that may be softer in some respects, but that might be more reputational. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my star employees at my, at my last place had said to me, you know, I've been the media person all this time, I know I'm good at media, but I think what I'm really good at is solving problems. And I wish I could just be one of those people who's on that SWAT team whenever there's some huge issue. Not because I'm the media person, right. which she's amazing at, but because I'm a good problem solver. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I think we have to make it okay to aspire mm -hmm. to those kinds of things yes. reputationally too. Mm -hmm. yes. Just like having the skill-based reputation, mm -hmm. you know, it's Absolutely. equally valid. I would just, to put a fine point on that, I, it's like any, any one of us who's ever had to kind of excavate a brand for a client or within our own company, whether it's a corporate brand or a, uh, you know, a consumer brand, there are many dimensions to a brand. So I love, I love what Kim's saying, and I, I do actually, thinking about this question ahead of time, I was like, well, my personal brand, I don't know. I think that they're, but I, I think I do know, and I think that that is the stuff you know and that you're good at, mm -hmm. and then the stuff that you're, um, almost like the behaviors that you're known for. Mm -hmm. The knowledge and the behaviors is two sides yeah. of one coin. Yes. And, and, and I, yeah, and how you work, that's right. And I'm not entirely certain earlier in my career, because I, I was sort of the you, Taylor, of beauty. I, for the first two-thirds of my career, I was a beauty specialist, mm -hmm. in-house and, and agency. And I got known as a beauty. She's a beauty girl. That's a whole other conversation. That is beauty girl. Right? Uh, right? Right? You probably there. still get called beauty girl. Yeah. Um, but there are worse things. Yeah. There were worse things. It's like, you know, she's a hideous girl. But I, I think that. Um, at what point in your career have you been at it long enough to understand the behaviors that you're known for? So yes. I, I think I probably, if I were counseling a younger colleague, I would say maybe focus on the skill set first mm -hmm. as you get to know yourself and as you and as you continue to grow up in a, in a professional environment. Um, and I think for me there was a moment when I realized I'm good in a room. Mm -hmm. I became the one who was good in a room. And whether that was a tough client or whether that was a brainstorm. And so then I was able to turn that into something more than just an expression. Oh, she's good in a room. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I actually love that part of, of what I'm known for because I actually like to be in a room talking, listening, interpreting, um, helping to steer a difficult client conversation back onto the rails, you know. Right. Um, the only other thing I would say, too, back to the skill set, I actually wish I diversified sooner. I'm completely honest. Interesting. I, because when I did then stop doing beauty and started doing just sort of broad-based mm -hmm. consumer um, work, I had a lot of catching up to do. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of sectors that I had to learn very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a balance. Mm -hmm. That's your book. I'm good in a room. I'm good in a room. That's She's a good in a room. That's, that's, you know, I think that everyone around the table is good in a room, clearly. Well, we're, we're winding down, um, but we haven't talked about money. We haven't talked about negotiation. We haven't talked about how do we how do we teach the skill of this is what I want. How do we teach women to be able to say that? How what you how do you how do you advise the women that work for you um, to be able to be empowered to, to this is what we talked about a little bit earlier. This is what I've achieved, but 
this is what I want, the, that discussion. How do women best navigate that? It's not easy, but mm -hmm. it's important. We have to be good at it for ourselves, first of all. Mm -hmm. Well, th does this yes. assume that we're good at it, our good at it ourselves? Uh, I, uh, I think it does go back to our earlier conversation about facts and accomplishments. Yeah. And um, I think that, as we all know, like, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of factors that influence the, the um, environment into which a young woman would kind of state her expectations about salary increases or you know, variable comp or whatever it is, mm -hmm. depending on how the company's doing that quarter mm -hmm. or that year. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, and I, candidly, I find it uh, just amongst us and everyone else who sees this, <laughs> I find it frustrating sometimes yeah. that a, a young employee will come forward with a very compelling case for why she needs, why she's worthy of X, Y, and Z from a compensation standpoint, and it's not possible mm -hmm. because of larger constraints of the company, mm -hmm. whatever company. Um, so even so, I think that there are ways that we can also, you know, as managers and leaders, find other ways to make that employee feel valued mm -hmm. if her salary demands or salary requests can't be accommodated. Um, but it's, I don't know, I'd actually love the other panelists to talk about it. Is, is talking about money still taboo? No, I, I, don't, I don't think talking about money is taboo. It, it but, be. Mm -hmm. Well, I, my, my advice is to Make sure you're not shooting the ants while the elephants are walking right by you. And um, you know, look at what is what is really what is what is really well. How are you defining wealth? Mm -hmm. And how do you accumulate wealth? And it, it reminds me when when I worked at Estee Lauder and I was leading the public relations team there. I remember this one person was just wanting this salary increase. Just pushing for the salary increase. As you're saying, Stephanie, it was a salary increase that could not be achieved mm -hmm. given this is a company, these are levels, there's mm -hmm. a larger environment, you're yeah. in, but I am going to provide you with these stock options. Mm -hmm. I don't want the stock options, I want the salary increase. Mm -hmm. And I'm explaining to this person, these stock options could be worth so, so much, much more. more. <laughs> and um, ultimately, they were. Mm -hmm. and you know, the Estee Lauder stock has been one of the great success stories mm -hmm. of the industry. And this person still calls me and thanks me <laughs> for not giving her that, you know, extra $10,000 salary that she felt so compelled about. But, you know, educating her and providing this other opportunity for growth. So, of course, it's a difficult subject. And it does have taboo elements. but. I think it's really important to educate ourselves about, you know, what are the various options mm -hmm. for deferred savings, for, mm -hmm. for employer contributions. And, and I feel that people falsely rivet on this one number, mm -hmm. which yeah. is only one number in a larger situation. Absolutely. You, I can tell when I'm, when I'm doing, if it's performance review time or whatever, when there's such an attachment to that number, as, as Sal is saying, it's very often a milestone number. Do you know what I mean? Yes, of We've all had those milestone numbers. We understand. Yep. And and um, and then also sometimes I can hear that um, I can hear the coaching mm -hmm. in in the young person's mm -hmm. voice, and that's fine. It's great that you have someone in your life who's coaching you and giving you advice on this. But but that I think sometimes contributes to the rigidity Absolutely. and and the right. the unwillingness to think so about these other right. kinds of compensation. Yeah. And it makes them difficult to go home to their fathers mm -hmm. and say. <laughs> 
I couldn't I do it. get it, Dad. I couldn't do it. They said no. no. That's right. It's really hard. Yeah. So this I want to I want to ask one more question Go. that came up when we were talking earlier. Um, so, Sally, you're on the board of the IRC. Um, Joanna, you started your own charity in Uganda. Um, I suspect that many of you have leadership roles outside of your jobs. Uh, how has that contributed to your career? And, and do you advise that to individuals who want to accelerate their career growth or be very successful in their career to also cultivate those volunteer uh, and, and philanthropic and nonprofit uh, growth opportunities together outside of their work? Yeah. It, it reminds me of your earlier question about expertise versus being broad. Yes. And mm -hmm. I was sitting here thinking, well, we have to be both deep and broad yes. at the same time. <laughs> and I feel that having been engaged in uh, charity work, in politics, really helped me to develop my skills, to broaden my network. Mm -hmm. um, I was on the board of my college, and I ended up chairing the search for the president of the college. And I learned a lot. It was a long-term goal of mine to be on the board of a public company, which I am, but I got ready for that by being on boards of charities yes. and, and small yes. organizations. Not to mention the pure joy of doing good. Sure. So it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic way to you know, experience more, meet more people, feel like you're really making a contribution. Yeah. I don't think there's any disputing that. There's no disputing no. <laughs> But I'll give you a contrarian point of view. Um, we knew about, that you would, Kim. Well, just, just trying to contribute here. Just, you know, about 10 years ago, I had a summer off. And I'd never had that in my whole adult life. And one of the things I did during that summer was I took tennis lessons. And I'd never played tennis, ever. It wasn't as though I had played in high school and, you know, had dropped off and wanted to learn again. And what I discovered then, and I've tried not to forget it, is that maintaining a beginner's mindset mm -hmm. is really, yes. really important. And it was, it was hard for me to not know how to do it, whatever it was, to really be taking direction and to not be the best and to not be in a leadership position or to struggle to get something right that seemed to come so easily to other people. And ever since then, I have tried to make sure that there are some things in my life that I do that I'm actually not great at. And I find that mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of humbling and it's just made me think about how I teach things to people that might be entirely new to them uh, because I'm a student myself mm -hmm. in other ways. So I feel like you know, I've had a lot of leadership opportunity between nine and five. And what I haven't had as much of between nine and five sometimes is maybe you know, being a student and being a beginner again. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to work that into and my personal life. And not being great at something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. that's such an interesting point. Mm -hmm. Just in summary, I would love if you guys would just kind of go around the room. And is there one thought that you have that maybe came out this round table, or just something maybe that we didn't bring up that we should have brought up that you feel is important for tonight's summary. Joanna, did you start? I think ultimately, you know, how do you make the most of your life is what we really touched on through this conversation. So it's not just career and it's not just home or your charitable endeavors, it's everything together. And I think what comes to me when I'm with incredible women such as these and we're having such large conversations such as the one we're having 
is how to craft and design a life that works for you mm -hmm. using all the levers and opportunities that are at your disposal. And truly, I think when I'm in my most successful moment, you feel open and ready and that those doors are open for you. And when you're the opposite is when you're, you know, by yourself, not growing, not learning. So um, it just reminds me to be in that open, confident space and always to be pushing and working with other women who will help you get there. That's great. That's very well said. I agree with every bit of that. You know, I'm struck by um, the importance of how women treat other women. Uh, and women advocating. And I liked your point about being an accomplice. I think that's really important. You know, we haven't talked actually about whether or not other women are sometimes a help or a hindrance. Yes. That's probably the topic of a whole other round table. And we've been talking about our relationships with men. Yeah, that's a, that's a big piece. But I think in terms of the, uh, you know, another takeaway is just that there are so many people to admire, men and women, and so many good people to be mentored by, but at the end of the day, you cannot model yourself to sort of be the copycat of someone else. You've got to authentically be who you are and, and be brave enough to acknowledge what's important to you and you know to always try to sort of polish and, and be the best version of yourself, but that the more we bring our true selves to work as women, as leaders, as, as whatever else it is that you define yourself by, the better off we'll all be. That's great. Um, hashtag cosign with both of what you guys said. Um, I, I think that there is, I'm actually struck in this room around this table, and there's, there's some other folks in, in the room here at the event, the degrees of separation are pretty short. Um, you know, I think that the, the power of the networks that you build as a woman in business um, can't be underestimated, and I'm struck, I, I was a colleague of Kim's. Um, I was in a room where Sally was my client. I've known you for 5,000 years. Uh, there's another Thank person you. in this room who interviewed me when I was 12 years old. You know, it's, um, it's and I was 5,000. We're both 5,000. But I just think there's such power in the relationships that you build and, and let's call it the old girls network. And I think that, um, not to make that like a, a ghetto or something, but um, there's great power in it. I'm very inspired by it. And, the other thing I, we didn't really get to touch on, but uh, I would uh, leave this as a piece of advice to anybody is, yes, find your mentors. Absolutely find your mentors. Um, find your sponsor. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the two big inflection points in my career that really were like pivotal forks in the road, it's because I had a sponsor who actually actively pushed me and advocated for me to go to the next level of my career and advocated about me in rooms where I wasn't even present. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the distinction of sponsor and mentor is really important to remember yes. and, and um, I owe it to the two sponsors of my 27 years who got me here. Mm -hmm. That's great. It, it was one of the questions, but we've run out of time. So that's a whole other discussion. It really is. Important. And, and the distinction between, between the two. That's right, it's not the same thing. Right. There's a practical point I want to make on the compensation discussion, which is when you're moving a job is the time yeah. where I think yes. you can have yeah. the yes. most impact mm -hmm. on, on salary. And at that point in time, I think there is still a taboo around people sharing information about what they earn. And I actually really try and help my network of professional friends to say, this is what I make, or this is what that position on my team pays. Because having that market data is the, most, the easiest way to have confidence to ask for what you want. And if you don't know what it is, it's, it's impossible to make that ask. So I think that there's a practical nature 
the practical advice that we can do, and then that's share information where we feel comfortable with each other so that people feel more empowered. My takeaway from, from this and from thinking about my career is nobody has it all figured out, and uh, we put the most, I think professional women put a ton of pressure on themselves to um, behave a certain way, to advance in a certain direction, and it's messy, it's not linear, uh, we all need help. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just the truth of how it will work. That's mm -hmm. mm -hmm. why we're here, to help right. each other and continue our relationships. We will all, I think, after tonight, be friends and stay in touch with each other. Sally. Well, first, uh, Maureen, I want to thank you and everyone at Lippy Taylor for putting together this incredible evening. It's a pleasure. Um, my takeaway from tonight is really how important it is to make time for people. Mm -hmm. And we, we talk about networking and sponsoring and, and all of that I, I think everyone at this table does. But I would encourage us to even go more deeply into uh, forming real relationships and friendships, taking time, whether it's talking to your interns mm -hmm. or, you know, everybody around this table probably worked a long day mm -hmm. and then thought to themselves, Gotta go down to Tribeca, no. you know, and, and, and how am I gonna get there? And it's late, and I gotta Sorry, get home. But, but it's been infinitely worth every minute because um, you know I've made some new friends, I've seen some old friends, and it really fuels me, and I think it fuels all of us to to have fun doing it, to enjoy one another's company. We spend an awful lot of time at these jobs, and the the friendships that I've made in 30 plus years across three companies um, are incredibly precious to me. Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. I echo everything that you, all of you said. And it's just so inspiring to be with all of the women in the room and men. Um, and I think mine is just simple. It's just the more that these conversations happen, the more progress that we make. And that's it. And I'm, I'm blessed to be very grateful to be in this room. And this is one conversation. But the more of these that you can do and all of us can have, whether they're in intimate settings or in, in larger settings, I think it's just going to continue to put us on the trajectory that we all as women should be on. So, Well, that's great. And I think on that note, we should let you women have dinner here. <laughs> you know, Sally, you can't join us for dinner. But I hope everybody will stay. We're going to eat here and the table's going to move very quickly. Sure. We have a beautiful dinner, but this has been a beautiful evening. I think there have been so many great insights that have been shared by each and every one of you. And I just hope we all remain friends. We keep this 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 group going. I will take that responsibility to try to keep us together, um, and then and, and expand our group. Um, but it's been so insightful, and I thank each and every one of you so much for 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 everything that you gave to this evening. So thank you. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All right. Really hope that you all enjoyed that as much as we did. So we figured we would do a little summary of our key takeaways from the evening. Lesson number one, don't wait for an invitation. Expect it. Pfizer's Sally Sussman shared a particularly insightful strategy she utilized to gain more even footing in her male-dominated field. She learned to play golf. As she said, it's important to refuse to be excluded. I learned to play golf just so I wouldn't be left behind. 
This simple example speaks to a deeper mindset of self-empowered equality as Sally urges women to refuse to be excluded, whether it's golf, dinner, or any kind of event. It's important to have the expectation of inclusion instead of hoping for it. Sally elaborated further when she said, don't wait for a formal invitation or for someone to hold the door, but present yourself as ready, willing, able, and expecting to be included. Number two, have an analytical approach to inclusion and fighting bias. Jennifer Lowney from City outlined an impactful policy where City utilizes data and research to fend off unconscious bias. So in an effort to drive change, City has a third-party representative from their talent company who sits in on reviews and talent assessments. They note any trends and preferences that the hiring managers may not be aware of. This is how they fight unconscious bias with data. Number three, there's no I in team, and that's just fine. When discussing executive female leadership, Kim White mentioned how frequently women are discouraged from taking credit for accomplishments. As she put it, a lot of women have been told that I is a dirty word. It's always we. Women typically will deflect a compliment by saying it wasn't me, it was the team. This is a shot in the foot for aspiring female leaders as ownership of accomplishments is essential to promotion. Male counterparts typically have very little trouble claiming credit. Promoting and acknowledging the team is a critical element of leadership, but so is accepting credit when credit is due. As Kim put it, there's a role for I and a role for we, and we need both to be in our vocabulary. Number four, find accomplices, not allies. Sponsors, not mentors. Scholastic Stephanie Smirnoff made a number of distinctions regarding the support system women should build within their organizations. There are mentors who will offer advice when asked, but then there are sponsors. Sponsors can be career game changers because they coach you and force you to be better than you could have ever been on your own. As Stephanie said, I had a sponsor who actively pushed me to the next level with my career and advocated about me in rooms when I was not present. The distinction between sponsor and mentors is important to remember. I owe it to the two sponsors who got me here. Stephanie then went on to differentiate between allies and accomplices and how allies will fight with you while accomplices will fight for you. As she put it, being an ally is stating that I stand with you. But if you're an accomplice, you're really going to come through for that person. Having internal champions in your organization is priceless. So if you can find them, keep them close. And if you can be them, be them. Number five, in times of crisis, focus on unity, not division. Despite the progress that it brought, the Me Too movement struck fear in the boardrooms of countless businesses across America as male leaders were afraid to bring female colleagues on overnight trips or to client events where there was excessive drinking for fear of sexual misconduct or harassment. Joanna Breitstein from Merck illustrated how other leaders were able to effectively utilize Me Too as a vehicle to facilitate more conversations about unity and inclusiveness as opposed to focusing on the fear factor. Taking crises like these and honestly addressing and discussing their underlying causes is how leaders truly bring forth positive and lasting change, as opposed to simply reacting and covering their companies behind. Number six, there's a difference between speaking up and being heard. 
Taylor Foxman from Pernover Card spoke about how early in her career, she would push herself to speak up in meetings to ensure she seemed engaged. Now, Taylor aims to be in as many meetings as possible, but usually remains silent. Instead of focusing on when to jump in, Taylor listens intently and takes the time to formulate a thoughtful reply. This practice ensures that people listen when she speaks, since her voice is synonymous with well-thought-out solutions, insights, and real meaning, as opposed to impulsive responses. Anyway, thank you all for listening. For more info on taking your seat at the table, strategies for reaching the C-suite as a woman, or to view the entire 90-minute conversation as a video, please visit lippytaylor.com slash takingyourseat. Don't forget to follow Lippy Taylor on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. To learn more about us, check out LippyTaylor.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.